What's going on, Oasis Church? It's so hard for me not to say Center Point Church. Uh, I just want to, before we get started, want to say a couple things in return, and it's not because I knew you were going to say a bunch of nice, albeit true things about me. I, I want to say a few things. First of all, for the Oasis people in the house and, and, and tuning in online, I want to give you some encouragement. The message that I sent Pastor Clint that one morning, it was like 3.45 a.m. or something ridiculous, and you responded like within 45 minutes, so clearly sleeping is an issue for you as well. Uh, it has nothing to do with I didn't know Clint, and at the time I didn't believe in him. I did not believe in him, but I mean, I just didn't know him. He was just this good-looking, red-headed guy I saw on a sponsored Facebook ad, but I know that God said to do that. And so I want to remind you that if God told me to do that, then that means that God circumnavigated all of the different ways to support what's happening in this church. So you are a part of a movement of God. I also want to give you just a little bit of encouragement to, to you both, as well as everybody else, because what you're doing is hard. It's difficult. As the pastor said, don't, don't, don't move to a new town in the middle of COVID and try to plant a church. And, um, but I want to tell you this, that, that most of the things that God asks us to do are difficult. And, and you guys are early adopters in something that one day people will look back. And, and I, I think of the church that I got saved in, Sunrise Baptist Church in Sacramento, California. And thank goodness that there were a group of faithful men and women that got together whenever that church was founded and said, we're going to do the hard things and we're going to start this church because now my children have given their life to the Lord. And it's a direct result of what those faithful people that I'll never know their names did back in the 60s. And so stick with it. The things of God are difficult and they should be difficult. <laughs> not, not, anyway, we're going to get into that in just a moment. And the last thing I want to do before we start into the word is I just want to tell you who your pastors are, Clint and Stephanie here. We, we get up on stage and sometimes and you're like, man, they're just the same people as they are on stage as they are off stage. And they're not. Now, before you, you gasp, let me finish that. They're better. Uh, they're good people that love the people of their church love this community, love ministry. And so I cannot honor you enough. And uh, I'm excited to just be a small part of the story of Oasis Church. But I also want to give a shout out to our team that's over here as well, because they work hard to, uh, to make this place look good for you. So after service, often they stay in clean and, and um, they don't complain to me either. So if they are complaining, it's to God, but it's not to me or you. Um, but it's, a, it's an honor to be a small part. Let me pray and let's jump into the message. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that you give us all ears to hear what you have for us today. Uh, I pray that I will get out of the way and keep my greasy fingerprints off of it, Lord, and that you will speak through me, commandeer my lips, God, and penetrate the hearts of your people. And let's lean in a little bit to what you have for us today, God. I love you, I praise you, and I would do anything for you and all God's people set. Amen. My message for you today is called Mama Drama. Now, this is for all the real housewives of Goodlettsville and Hendersonville. Uh, full disclosure, since I think this is a safe place here at Oasis, I kind of like those shows. I know that's crazy. I don't like drama in my real life, but I love it in, on my TV shows. Same. Okay, so we're good. Your guy back here that counts the money, uh, he's judging us. Uh, but I just want to remind you, Judas counted the money. That's all I'm going to say. Judas counted the money. Just remember that, all right? 
Yes, and don't laugh too hard. The worship leader is the only person to ever get kicked out of heaven. Just remember that too. But enough of that. Mama drama. I read a survey recently that I found absolutely fascinating. And what I think this is going to do, I think this is going to pull back the curtain and let us see a little bit of Oz of what's wrong with the United States. Now, we don't have time for me to tell you everything that's wrong with the United States, but you'd probably say amen to most of it. But I think this may be a glimpse of what is wrong with Christians in the United States today. And it all has to do with this survey. It was in 2014. It was done by PBS. It was a world survey. They asked 82,000 adults in 54 different countries this question. What is the most important thing that you want your children to be one day? What is the most important thing that you want your children to be one day? And I have the results for you from different countries. And I want you to hear the difference between what is important culturally because it's going to pull back the curtain and, and let you know that we may just be missing it. So here's a couple. China, the most important thing that they wanted their kids to be was successful. Ukraine was a hard worker. Russia, strong, with strength. Egypt, they wanted their kids to be religious. Iraq, perseverance. South Korea, they wanted them to bring honor to their family and their country. These are the things they wanted. The Italians, this, uh, this actually sounds very Italian, if any of you are Italian. They wanted for their kids to have a large family and have lots of friends who were like family. So that, I think that's like also on the commercials for Olive Garden. Uh, Mexico wanted their kids to be responsible. But the United States, the number one thing that parents, American parents, wanted for their kids was happiness. The number one thing they wanted for their kids was Happiness. And what I want to pose to you today, this question, is what is wrong with happiness being our primary goal in raising our kids? And I'm even going to take it a step further. I yell a lot. You'll get used to it. I'm going to take it even a step further. I'm going to say that God is not nearly as interested in your happiness as you are. And that God may not care at all if your kids are happy, aren't you glad you came to service today? <laughs> These kids are like, geez, what does he want, man? And I am going to show you a story in which the mother of two very famous people in the Bible has the audacity to approach Jesus, and the one thing she asks for is prosperity for her children. And she's about to miss the whole reason why Jesus came. We're going to be in Matthew, the tax collector's gospel, Matthew 20. We're going to start off in verse 17. We're going to really just kind of hover over this portion of scripture today. So it makes it very easy if you don't have the books of your Bible memorized. Shame on you. We all do. Just kidding. I have those tabs on the side. You know what I'm talking about? You can feel the judging. All right. I better see this altar full at the end of you judgmental people. Here we are. Verse 17. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, and on the way he took the twelve aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day... He will be raised to life. So he's speaking in the third person, which is pretty gangster, but Jesus does that a lot. 
And, and the, what, the reason that this is important is because this is the third time in Scripture that Jesus lets them know that he's going to die. So when things of God happen, doesn't mean that it should always surprise us. Jesus told them, but yet they didn't get it. But what's remarkable about this portion of Scripture and why I think it's going to be paramount for you to really kind of hover over it is because this is the first time that Jesus specifies that it will be a death via crucifixion. And this culturally had all kinds of problems because no righteous son of God, not the Messiah, would not die in the most just gruesome and humiliating way of being stripped naked and hung on a cross to die. And if I can be honest, some Jews even today still have a problem with that. Because the Messiah is supposed to be the conquering king that's supposed to come back. He's supposed to defeat the Roman Empire. But guess what? Three years later, when his earthly ministry is over, the Roman Empire is still in power. The bad guys are still winning. Alabama still wins the national championship. The bad guys win sometimes. Amen. That's the first time you said amen tonight. So what's going to happen right after this? It, it's, I love this portion of scripture because I can feel the tension. I could feel the drama. And I bet Matthew, the tax collector, is writing this down in the robotic way in which he wrote his, his you know, gospel because tax collectors are just kind of systematic. And, and that's why I prefer Mark's gospel, if I can be honest, because Mark was a disciple of Peter. Peter's my second favorite person in the New Testament. Who's the first? It's Jesus. Duh, Jesus. But, but Mark, you can tell he trained under Peter because he's so dramatic, which I told you I like already. So... A mom, the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John. You know John, who will later write the gospel. He's the one whom Jesus loves. This isn't James. This isn't James who is going to write the, um, or this is James that's going to, uh, hold on a second. <laughs> this is not James that's going to write the book of James later. That was tough to get to. This is, uh, that was James's, Jesus's half-brother. This is James who was one of the disciples. So don't get those mixed up. But their mom, their brothers, obviously, their mom is about to approach Jesus. And I want you to hear what she says. Verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, if you had an audience with Jesus, what would you ask him for? A million bucks to be young and slender again. What would you ask Jesus for? She asked Jesus for her children to be prosperous. Nothing wrong with that on the surface. What is it that you want, Jesus asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus says this. He says, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Now let's unpack that for just a moment. Can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink? Essentially means can you go where I'm about to go? Can you handle what's about to happen to me? And keep in mind, they're still missing it, though he's saying it's going to be via crucifixion. They still miss it. And so the mom, the mother of Zebedee, up to this point, we don't know her name, up to this point, asks something on the surface that would be very, very common and nothing wrong with it, asking for her kids to be prosperous. Hey, can my sons sit at your right hand and your left hand of your kingdom that you're going to build right here on earth? And Jesus is like, you miss it. You're missing what I'm doing. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know the stakes. 
of what it's going to cost to follow me. It's not going to be happiness. Jesus never promised us that following him would make life easier or that it would make us happier. He said it would be better and he said it would be worth it. Now, some of you are in here and you're like, I'm not a parent yet. What do I care about being a parent? Like, I'll worry about that one day. I see you smiling over there. Here's the thing. You want to learn how to become a good parent before you become a parent. The same way you want to learn how to become a surgeon before you become a surgeon. And so you don't want to build the plane as you fly it while you're trying to raise these crazy parasites known as children. And, and so if I could just tell you for a moment, before I had kids, I had parenting all figured out. I was the best parent in the world before I had kids. Y'all are that way too. You're probably that way right now. You're like, man, let me, let me just tell you. When, when I had kids, I realized I knew nothing. Before I had kids, though, let's go back. This is when Jason was an idiot. I'm super smart and humble now. But back when I was an idiot, before I had kids, I remember going to dinner with friends of mine that had kids and their kids acting terrible. And I remember I didn't say anything until we got home, because I'm not going to say it to their face. I'm way too classy for that. I'm going to talk about their back, behind their back once they leave. And, then, and I would go home, and I would be like, man, when I have kids, they're going to know how to behave at a restaurant. They're going to put their, la- their, their napkin on their lap. They're going to use the proper fork. They're going to say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. They're going to behave. They're not going to act like your kids. The reality is I was so thankful that there was a thing called Uber Eats when I had kids. Because I'm like, dude, put this in a to-go box. Let's go home. I'm about to, I'm not going to spare the rod any longer. I remember one time before I had kids, I was over at a friend's house and they were putting their kids to bed. And their kids do what often kids do. You tell me if you do this, Olivia. Right before a kid is supposed to go to bed, everything they've ever needed in their whole life comes to the front of their mind. All of a sudden, they're like super thirsty. You're like, bro, you haven't drank water in three days. You've been drinking milk and and, uh, uh, Capri Suns. Now, all of a sudden, you're parched. Where'd you even learn that word? And, 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 and then they're hungry. They need a snack. And then all of a sudden, there's a monster in their bed. And you're like, no, no, the monster's not in your bed. The monster's right here. Get away from me. And, and then they come down the hallway, and they just need something. And, and I don't know if you got daughters. I do. And like my daughters, as they come down the hallway, they can't just walk. They like dance, and they skip. And you want to see what my, my impersonation of it? I'm not giving that to you, not for free. Just kidding, I'll do it. I just, only a few applause and make me feel better. But they just, my daughters, they, it's like they're ice skating, like just down the, I know, you should watch it, it's weird. But but I remember when I was at my, my friend's house and I was like, dude, when I go, when my kids grow up, like, they're, they're not gonna to do that at all. Like, when I put them to bed, they're gonna stay in bed. And, and that was back when I was an idiot. But the reality is, sometimes kids don't do what you tell them to do. I don't know why I need Jesus. But I'm thinking about what do I want for my kids? And here's the thought. Is oftentimes I raise my kids as if we're still in the Old Testament. Here's what I mean. 
rules, regulations, and here's the punishment if you break these rules. It's almost like I raised my kids as if Jesus never came. But when Jesus showed up, Jesus changed everything. He changed his relationships, and he also changed his parenting. And now he changed everybody's relationship with God. So here's my goal. Are you ready? My goal it should be the same as your goal, is not to raise happy children, but to raise godly children. And here's why. Because one day you're not going to be there. And if you're the only God they know, and their relationship goes through you, when you're God and God's God, And when you go through struggles, when there's those nights that things are difficult, let your children in on it because they need to know early on that this life with Jesus, being a Christ follower, isn't easy. And you can have joy, but you're not always going to be happy. So the mother of James and John falls into the same trap we do where our primary goal is to just have our kids be happy and prosperous and let everybody know how successful our family is. And this is a slippery slope because we're presenting a false gospel to our children and we're also not being real with each other. Verse 22. And again, this is Jesus responding to her when she says, can they sit at your right and left hand? He says, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them, Can you drink from the cup I am going to drink? And listen to what James and John say. We can. Verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from the cup. But to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared by my father. He says, can you drink from this cup that I am going to drink? They said, we can. And they did. James is recorded in around AD 44 in Jerusalem, the first martyr of the disciples, beheaded. James, uh, I wrote it down, Tertullian, that's it. I always want to say turtle. Tertullian is like this theologian, and he documented that that John, Zebedee, the beloved disciple, was actually later on boiled in oil. Gerald, you call it oil, probably. Oil. And survived, disfigured. Then we know later, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. And around AD 90, he's still writing the book of Revelation in the cave on the island of Patmos. I had the pleasure of going there just a few years ago. It's a desolate place. And here's here's John. He lived a lot longer. But imagine what it would look like if all these years later, the Roman Empire is still in power. And he's had to watch as all of these men that he's done life with for so long, one after another, die a martyr's death, and he's the only one left. And he's stuck on this island when he's probably thinking, we were supposed to rule on earth. We were supposed to be the ones that were in power, that had prosperity, that had happiness, because at the time, that's what I thought following God would look like. And I would imagine at this old of age, as he's sitting there blind, still being used by God to write a revelation, there has to be a moment where he's like, 
I've completely missed what following Christ looks like. Now, don't worry. It's going to end on a good note. Some of you are like, man, why did we come to church? I'm just going to find out that all this bad stuff's going to happen to me. Just wait. Just wait. Let's move to 24. We're approaching the runway. Verse 24. When the 10 heard about this, now, now pause, pause it. Take that off the screen. Don't let them cheat. So if you know anything about the Bible, you know what Peter and John's relationship looks like up to this point. Okay, so we haven't had Pentecost yet. At Pentecost, they never really argue again. But this is pre-Pentecost Peter. This is the Peter that's cussing out little girls and cutting guys' ears off, okay? And, and he obviously is, is concerned about how close Jesus and John are getting. So this is pre-Pentecost Peter. Now, now Scripture sometimes is funny because this first verse, just, just hold on. Don't, don't put it back up on the screen. All right. You cheat. Take that off the screen, man. When the ten heard about this, Guess who's in that tent? Peter. And he's about to find out that James and John, and I'm sure he rolled his eyes when he said the one whom Jesus loves, used their mom to go ask Jesus in private if they can rule. He's probably not going to take that very well. Scripture is funny. It's got layers to this type of stuff and these relationships and these interactions. And so what is Peter's response? Well, Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot. If Mark wrote this, it probably would have been pro-Peter, but it probably would have been a lot more dramatic. But listen to what he says. He says, when the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. So they, they weren't pleased. But Jesus never misses an opportunity to teach us a lesson. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. I, I, don't, know if I'm a, <laughs> I don't know if I'm about this Jesus thing if I got to serve to be great. Because because that doesn't sound very fun. My, my youngest daughter, her name is, is Callie, and she is, I think she's seven now. I don't know. It changes every year. <laughs> That's funny. I think she's seven. But about a year ago, she gave her life to the Lord, a little over a year ago. And before that, we had a series of conversations leading up to that. And this was the deal breaker for her. I remember us walking down this church I used to work at down the hallway, and she said, my pastor, my kid's pastor, he, he, he told me that, that if I want to be like Jesus, I have to be nice to the people who are mean to me. And I said, well, yeah, kind of. I mean, you, you've got to be kind to people and love the difficult people. And she goes, not interested. <laughs> she gets that from her mom, pray for her. But I remember that. I remember thinking, you know what? That's actually totally an honest answer is... <laughs> Because I'm here to serve, and, 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 and the kingdom of heaven is an upside-down kingdom, man. And so even as, you know, the title lead pastor of Centerpoint Church, as glamorous as that may sound, and it's not, but if it may sound, that means that actually I'm the lead servant at Centerpoint Church. That actually means I have the most people who metaphorically feet I have to wash. And so Jesus is letting them know, y'all are going to miss it. 
If you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, learn to be a servant of all. Verse 27, and whoever must wants to be first, must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I ask you this question. When we raise our kids, we're going to raise them as if the New Testament exists, because it does. And Jesus cared a lot more about the relationship and teaching them the lessons than he did about the rules and regulations. But oftentimes, and forgive me if your church does this, some churches will put the Ten Commandments on the wall directly in front of new people who don't know God that walk in. And what does that say to them? That says, these are the things you have to do or you don't belong here. I don't think, I don't think they're getting the point. I know with my girls... I've got a little over 10 years left before they walk away and I've got to just trust that they know God at that point. Because if they only know God through me, when I'm gone, God's gone. You ever heard someone say, we raised our kids and then as soon as they went to college, they acted in a way that we didn't raise them? And they're like, I didn't raise my kid that way. It's because they didn't bring God with them because they left God at the house. But I also want you to know that we've got to teach our kids that sometimes following God isn't easy. And that sometimes life throws us curveballs. Sometimes you get a diagnosis. Sometimes prayers don't get answered. I think it's easy to pray for those things. But it's really hard to pray them with 100% confidence that God is sovereign. I think the appropriate prayer is, my God, it's the same prayer of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when you go through the difficult times. My God will save me. But even if he doesn't and chooses not to, I will declare his name is good. I will declare his praise. So here's my question to you. What's your primary goal with raising your kids? I'll take it a step further. When you go to work, and you're going through a difficult season, how do you talk about it to your peers? Let me, let me tell you what a lot of churches tell you that you have to do. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And on the inside, you're like, I'm about to get divorced. But because I follow Jesus, I got to pretend like everything's great all the time. And everything's fine. Because if I even voice that things are difficult right now, they're going to think that I'm, I've lost faith in God. And then what it does is it tells the world, I can't be a follower of Jesus because these followers of Jesus have everything perfect and right all the time. And I am broken and I have sin and I've made mistakes. And unless I look like them, I'll never be there. And I think we are missing it. Mark tells us, Mark, you know, the one I like, Peter's disciple. He actually tells us the name. It's Salome. It's kind of like salami, but doesn't taste as good. Salome. S-A-L-O-M-E. Salome. Sometimes you'll hear people pronounce it Salome. Salome. And, and what's interesting is she actually also appears in the Apocrypha. And what we hear about Salome is this. 
is that she was present at the crucifixion. That she was present at the crucifixion. Now, here's what I think. Imagine. Because no doubt, if you had an interaction with Jesus, no doubt those things would be playing in your mind. You would remember about every word that Jesus said to you specifically and that you said to him. Have you ever said something stupid to someone and then in your mind at night, you're like playing it through your mind and you're like, why did I do that? I used to do that when I tried to ask girls out. Like I would show up and I would ask them out and I would say the most dumb things. Like I went up to this, <laughs> I went up to this girl this one time and I said, you must be from Tennessee because you're the only 10 I see. And it didn't work. Cheesy line, ugly face, bad combination. It didn't work. But I remember going home, playing it through my mind, going, why did I do that? Why didn't I just say hi? Why didn't I, you know, you just talking. And I'm sure that Salome is thinking this. I'm sure she's sitting there at the crucifixion of Jesus as she's looking up on the hill and she sees Jesus hanging from the cross. She's probably replaying in her mind the words of Jesus when he says, you don't know what you ask. Because you're asking for your sons to be at my right and left and to drink from this cup. And oh, they will. But you're missing it. And I would imagine that as she's looking up at Calvary and she sees the thief hanging on the right and the thief hanging on the left and the same means of death and humiliation that Jesus is facing, she's probably at that moment saying, oh, now I get it. Oh, now I get it. So here's my challenge to you. Really take a moment and recalibrate what's important to Jesus and make that important to you. Because if we only promote to our children that you'll get prosperity... That God will answer all of your prayers whenever you, you ask them as if he's a genie in a lamp. Then what happens when they get in their early 20s and they pray for healing and a diagnosis and it doesn't happen? What happens when they lose their job? What happens if out of nowhere their spouse decides they don't want to be married to them anymore? What happens? You know what I love about Christianity? Jesus never did the bait and switch. Look at the front of your Bible. Christianity puts it right on the front. We don't put a dollar bill sign saying that it'll be a prosperous life. We don't put a blue check mark saying you're going to be famous and well-loved by everyone. We don't put a picture of your couch saying it's going to be comfortable. Doesn't say pick up your lazy boy and follow me. What do we put right on the cover? We put a cross, an instrument of death showing that our Savior came to give his life as a ransom for many. And through one man, all of mankind became unrighteous. But through the acts of the Son of God, we may all be made righteous. We put it right on the cover. And I want to end it with this. I want to end our time with this. Most of you don't know my story. Not that interesting, to be honest. But a little over a year ago, in the middle of COVID, my family and I were told by God to move to a church in a town where we don't know anybody and serve a congregation in the middle of a pandemic. And for me, 
I gave up my personal dreams a long time ago to follow God. He's already destroyed my life enough in a good way. I was going to be president of the United States, y'all. Instead, I was a history teacher from middle school, a.k.a. an ecosystem of hormones and puberty. And then now I'm in full-time ministry. But it was not easy to look my two daughters in the eye and tell them that God told us and them to give up every friend they've ever known in their entire life, live literally next door to their great-grandmother who they see every day and say, now you'll see her every couple of months, to give up their school, their kid's pastor, and everything they've ever known and say, God has asked us to go do this. But what a great example early on that we, my wife and I have a chance to show them really what is it like to follow God. And what does this life, being a Christ follower, actually look like? And so every time that God uses this church for a salvation, for a baptism, for an answered prayer, we share that with them because that is part of their inheritance as well because they sacrificed. And we left it to them to vote. And they voted yes. God never promised us it would be easy, but he promised us it would be better and that would be worth it, if not in this life, in the next life. And for some of you who think maybe God stopped answering your prayers or doesn't hear them anymore, let me echo the words of Scripture over and over again in your head, in your soul, in your hallways. If his eye is on the sparrow, how much more is his eye on his children? No prayer is so small it insults him or so large that it scares him. He is intimately involved in the lives of his children. My prayer is that God speaks to you today in some way to remind you that you were made on purpose and for a purpose, and that purpose is the same purpose of Jesus. The purpose is always people. The purpose is always people. It is the priority. It is the currency. Would you stand with me? Let's just pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word, first and foremost, man, that your word never returns void and that all these thousands of years later, your living word can still speak to us wherever we are. That your word needs to be elevated over all things. God, I I thank you for the men and women that are represented in this room and, and online. And I thank you, God, that you knit them together in their mother's womb for a purpose. Your word, Ephesians 2.10, says, you are Christ's masterpiece, made anew in Christ Jesus to do good works in which he planned ahead of time. And I pray that against the words of the enemy echoing through their minds that they've messed up too many times to be used by you, God. And I just pray for the parents and the grandparents and the aunts and the uncles, God, that, that this word today from Matthew would remind us of what our priority is when raising kids and it's to raise a generation behind us that will know you and that will run to you during seasons of difficulty rather than curse your name. They will lean into you, God. I pray for strength for the single moms. I pray strength for the fathers. 
It's not an easy time to be a man of God and raise a family. Give them strength, Lord. And finally, I just pray for Clint and Stephanie and Oasis Church and the whole team here, God, that your favor will continue to pour upon them and that for generations, the greatest Ponzi scheme of all time, the inheritance will continue to build up for all the men and women and families that are part of Oasis Church. Lord, I love you. I praise you. And I would do anything for you and all God's people say, amen. Let's give God a hand for his word tonight. Come on. Hey, and thanks, Jason, as well. Appreciate it. Great job, dude.